0: Hello, and welcome to the Writer's Lock, the story podcast where we read niche Pokemon death fiction for your enjoyment. This podcast is about the Nuzlocke Challenge, which is a way of playing Pokemon with two main rules. One, only catch the first Pokemon encountered in each area. And two, when a Pokemon faints, it is dead. And from these rules come stories. Stories that we weave into grand tales of adventure, hope, despair, astounding battles, and horrible, horrible death. But it's mostly pretty great. Trust me. I'm Erboror, often known as Erb. Yes, you've been mispronouncing my username this whole time. And no, I don't care. I write all that we are, the dark yet hopeful story of Valna one of the few remaining fragments of what was once humanity on a journey to save her broken world. I also make Dust in the Wind and These Are Not Pocket Monsters, in case you want to see how good my meme game is. This is the pilot episode of our podcast, so a little later on, my co-host and creator of the project, Flop, will be on to explain how this podcast came to be. That'll be between the three chapters we're reading today, from three stories Call of the Divines, Solstice, and first up Gracidia. This one's an ultra sun story lock by the talented Glance Sherlock, and it's gonna be read to us by Silverdo. Take it away.
1: Gracidia, by Glance Sherlock Read by Silverdo Chapter one buttercup. Petals whisper warnings through the wind, kicking pollen around that falls to the ground, wasted. Their efforts fall deaf on my ears as I foolishly peek over their yellow heads. The scent of sea salt and pineapple mixes in the air with the nectar, and the sound of stems breaking. There's a trail of trampled friends, leading to a pair of a giant's feet. A beaded triangle sways on your pack. It is another warning. Humans branded with them only venture out here for one thing. Her eyes fix themselves on me. They're dark and excited and dangerous. The moment her large finger points in my direction, I know it is my time. A blue fellow rests at the trainer's feet, gazing up at her like the most obedient servant. His tongue flaps at his cheek carelessly. Slobber flicks off. It disgusts me. At her word, he makes a clumsy charge at me but I tell him there is no need. I sit myself properly on a pedal and hold tight to my favorite stamen. I await the capsule's impact, and I accept my fate. I hold my reservations during the introductions. There's so many of you already that names slip from my memory the instant I learn another. Only three stay with me after it's all said and done. Lola, our trainer for one. It felt the most important to me. She appears inexperienced and dense, but at the very least she has the good graces to grant me some adjustment time before thrusting me onto the nearest wild creature. Felix is the blue one. He is a right dolt, a self-proclaimed leader who's too eager to please and too stupid to recognize an insult. Peaches only sticks out to me because, next to Oracorio, Cotney may be the worst possible neighbors in all of creation. A gust of wind picks up and it snows foul fluff, getting everywhere and sticking to leaves and suffocating flowers. The amount of time I've spent cleaning up after them? Disgraceful. Withholding judgment on him proves difficult. But your name might as well not exist, because I cannot for the life of me remember it. Which is surprising, considering out of everyone on the team, you have made the absolute worst impression. First you fly far too close to me, and then your twitchy little wings blow pollen off my steed, and then you have the audacity to sneeze in my face. I see you now trying to pick all the powder out of your hairs. Serves you right. I steer my flower around the meadow that is no longer my home, staying close to Lola and recognizing acquaintances that she orders Felix and Peaches to attack. Being knocked out is not an alien concept to me. Last time the moon was full, a human with a beta triangle targeted me with his rock ruff. That was not the first instance, either. Now I am the opposition. Thankfully, I am not sent out. You're not very subtle, you know. I hear you back there, buzzing. Why are you following me? On second thought, don't answer that. Just go. Bother the fat pink one. He looks slow enough for your speed. Of course you don't listen. You hover in place and stare at me with those sparkling, unchanging eyes. I can't gauge your emotions right now. Are you apologizing? Sick, perhaps? Or maybe you're interested in my steed. No! Get back! What on earth makes you think that's yours to eat? I frantically smooth out the petal to inspect the damage you've done. Nothing is torn, only bin. I sigh in relief. You make another advance, and I tug on a stamen to move away. Listen, I spent weeks scouring this meadow, risking life and limb for the perfect bloom. Do you know how exposed my kind is without a flower for protection? I've been priming it to be used as my weapon and companion, infusing pixie dust and fortifying the stem, keeping it alive for the day it becomes a part of me. It is my life's work, and I will not have some tiny insect destroy all my efforts. Yes, I recognize we're the same size. Shove off. This will have to be repaired. And since this is your doing, you're going to help me. There's a species of flower here that produces a special nectar, the kind those pom-pom birds love. I need you to gather some for me. The flower is yellow with, yes, I know they're all yellow. Allow me to finish. It will be four marrows instead of five. Do you know what that means? No? Look for a bloom with four petals. Not many have them, so it'll stick out. The oricorio might squawk at you, but pay them no mind. They're noisy, greedy things, with no bite or backbone. Your expression is blank, unreadable. What's the matter? You're used to having a queen bee, aren't you? And following orders? I gave you a task, now shoo. You're gone for a while, and I spend my time growing familiar with trips, a wingle. Quite easily the most amiable mod on the team. His manner is simple and charming, and he seems to appreciate the same subtle details about nature that I do. We comment on some leftover morning dew clung to a shady patch of grass. He brushes some into the sunlight so we can watch them sparkle. I learned from him that our trainer is young and new to the field, and that many on the team are still getting acquainted. He says it could be a long journey, so the better we get along, the smoother the road ahead. His tone is gentle, but I wonder if he's alluding to my treatment of you. He nods his head in a pleasant farewell when Lola calls him to fight. I sense no resentment from him. It's relieving to know I may have a friend to keep me company. When you return, I'm surprised by the amount of nectar you've managed to carry, especially considering your legs might as well be strings. A thin trail drips behind you, and I gather what I can before it can all fall to the ground. Without hesitation, I go to work preparing my steed. The crinkled petal is covered in gold as I massage it in with the pink dust that flows from my hands. The sun catches it and I think of the morning dew. I can feel you watching and try my best to ignore your incessant buzzing in my ear. You whisper your apologies and the genuineness forces me to sigh. The petal will repair itself in time, I'll see to that. No harm in the long run, truly, so if you ever pull such a stunt again. I will not hesitate to call a gale upon a fellow fairy. Hm, What was that? Your name? Say again. Zuri. Not a bad one, I suppose. It suits you, in a way. Call me Poppy.
0: And now... Liardin's Call of the Divines, a heart-gold story lock, read by Ordo Skirata.
2: Call of the Divines, Prologue 1. I'm not sure how long I've been here. It's not like there's no way of telling. The guards bring me three meals a day, and my cell has a window through which I can see the sun rise and set. But the meals and sunsets all kind of blur. I think it's day seven. Then again, I thought it was day seven yesterday. Funny how the mind plays tricks like that, like I'm trying to cheer myself up by going, you've made it a week, you can get through this. It'd be more convincing if I knew what this actually was. Someone came to visit me earlier, my first visitor since the first day, if you don't count the guards. A week ago, I'd have called him weird as fuck, but that's a pretty good description for what's happening in my life right now, but even so... Who the hell goes around dressed like the damn phantom of the opera? And it wasn't just the way he looked that was weird. When the guards let him in, he sat down in the middle of my cell, closed his eyes, and just kind of sat there for about ten minutes. For a few moments, I thought about grabbing him and, I don't know, demanding that the guards let me out or I'd do something. I didn't do much more than briefly consider the idea before dismissing it. It works in Hollywood, but I'm not an action hero. And just from my cell, I can see at least three swords, and the bandage on my arm is pretty damn good evidence that they're real. Or at least one of them is. It's about two hours after the masked dude leaves that I get some more visitors. I'm just Mr. Popular today. I know these ones, though. There are lots of things that scare you when you're a kid, and then as you grow up, you get over those fears. You keep a couple, of course. Heights, spiders, trains, whatever. But you think that when you're an adult, you're tougher than you were as a kid, less likely to get scared. It's complete bullshit. I don't even realize I'm backing away from the two of them until I feel the cold metal of the cell bars against my back. The only reason my nails aren't digging into the palm of my hands is that I've brought the blanket that was on my cot with me, and I'm hugging it to myself tightly. I want to look at them, but I can't. It literally feels like something's got hold of my head and is twisting it away. Must be the same invisible force that's making me shudder uncontrollably. I find myself focusing on the tray that had what I think was lunch on it. What little I left is now on the cell floor. I must have knocked it over when I'd hidden away from the two women that have just come into the jail. I feel the air stirring around me as someone moves closer, and impress myself further back into the cold stone and metal. It's okay, says a soft, high voice in an upper-class British accent. I risk a look at the speaker. As I'd guessed from the voice, it's the woman in the pale blue dress with long blonde hair and vibrant sapphire blue eyes. She's kneeling down in front of me, positioned so that she's blocking my view of her companion. You don't need to be afraid, she adds. I want to snap at her, to tell her that you can't just stop being scared like flicking off a light switch. But all that comes out of my mouth is a kind of stuttering whimper. My name's Lyra, she continues. She pronounces it weirdly though, so it sounds like she's that old Italian currency back before they switched to the euro. What's yours? Ethan, I managed to stammer out on the third attempt. Victor Ethan Hall. That's a rather long name, Lira remarks dubiously, in such a deadpan manner that I can't help but chuckle slightly. Just, just Ethan is fine. Lyra shifts her position so she's sitting cross-legged in front of me. I apologize for what's happened to you. Which bit exactly, I ask bitterly. I realize that antagonizing the only person who's been nice to me so far probably isn't the smartest thing to do, but now I've started, I can't stop myself. Locking me in the cell, interrogating me with these insane, made-up questions, treating me like I'm a fucking criminal, slicing my arm open with- My voice is getting more and more panicked and louder, until, to my surprise, Lyra abruptly reaches out and hugs me. I flinch away instinctively when she moves, but right now I really need the comfort, and I cling to her tightly as she strokes my back. I'm scared, I admit in a wavering voice. I know, Lyra replies softly. It's okay. I'm not sure in what possible way any of this could be considered okay, but I'm not about to complain about the reassurance. Carly and I are going to help you work out what's happened. Carly? Carlay, Lyra corrects me, pronouncing it Carl A. Princess Carlay of Jota. The princess thing catches me completely off guard, and I only figure out who Lyra is talking about when she comes closer. And then it's only the fact that Lyra is still holding me that stops the panic building in my chest from becoming overwhelming. Princess Carle is dressed in a simple shirt and trousers, with a strange jacket that covers her shoulders and arms, and trails down her back in two strips of fabric. She has dark blue hair, but my gaze is instinctively drawn to her grayish-blue eyes. They're warmer and friendlier than they were last time, but I can still see that same terrifying, merciless edge to them. I'm sorry I hurt you, she says softly. She has a British accent, same as Lyra. For an intruder to get so deep in the palace is frightening. And for a moment, that steel in her eyes vanishes. And I realize that she's younger than I'd first thought. So is Lyra. Neither of them can be much older than I am. I reacted on instinct, but it was the wrong thing to do. I'm sorry. The thing is, Ethan, Lyra continues, drawing my attention back to her. Most of His Majesty's Council believe that you are, well, not to put too fine a point on it, insane. We don't, Carly adds. All I can really do is gape at them. I'm the insane one? Before I can voice my thoughts, Lyra continues. It is our belief that you're from, bizarre as it sounds to say, another world. I look up at her, and then over to Carly. Both of them are watching me cautiously. You... I stammer, less out of fear this time and more out of sheer bemusement. You're serious? You think I'm an alien? I have to resist the urge to laugh at them. Do you not agree it makes sense? The princess asks. You speak of all these things that are natural to you, but which we have never even heard of, and you in turn have professed no knowledge of information that even a child of our world would know. Lady will confirm that you are telling the truth, Lyra continues, or at least that you believe you are telling the truth. Thus we see only two options. Either your mind has been ravaged by magic and these fanciful ideas sculpted from the madness that resulted, or you have somehow come from somewhere where the divines are unheard of and instead you have... She waves a vague hand. Phones, and Florida, and so forth. Can you see another option? I can, of course. But though Lyra doesn't frighten me, Princess Carlay does. And I sure as hell don't want to tell her that she is completely fucking sick and insane. But what I want to say obviously shows in my eyes, because Carlay glares at me. Perhaps you believe that we are the Mad Ones, imagining our own world. Tell me, Ethan. She mispronounces my name. Is this our imagination? She holds out her hand, and a streak of flame blasts out from her palm. Even though it's a fair distance away, I can feel the heat wash over me. And then the fire fades away, and there's a fucking sword in her hand? What the fuck? She flicks the sword, and suddenly the tip of it is pressed against my throat. And I'm shaking so much, I'm scared I'm going to impale myself on the damn thing. And that only makes me shake more. I would have thought you would remember, Carley remarks coolly. And I do remember. The sudden flash of light and heat before she'd lunged at me with the sword in the gardens, without a trace of humanity in her eyes. Carly, please, Lyra says quietly. He's scared enough as it is. He needs to see the truth, Carly replies, unapologetic, but she takes the sword away from my throat and drops it. Before it lands, it vanishes in another flash of fire. I wave my hand through the space the sword should occupy, running my fingers over the rough stone floor of the cell. I saw it vanish, but it's like my brain won't accept that it's gone. I stop only when Lyra scoops up the wooden cup I'd knocked to the floor earlier and offers it to me. Somehow, it's still full of water, and I gratefully take it. There's a slightly wooden taste to the water, but it calms me down a little. I'm not sure how long I sit there, still leaning against Lyra, taking occasional sips from the cup, and trying to ignore Carle pacing back and forth impatiently. Once I've drained the cup, I look back to Lyra. I open my mouth a few times, but I can't even begin to formulate a question. Carle is what we call one of the blessed. Lyra begins to explain. A chosen warrior of the Divines, granted powers beyond those of normal humans, like you. Call of the Divines, Prologue 2 Lyra and Carly stay for what must be a good couple of hours, because they only depart when the guards bring my dinner. My head's still spinning with everything they've told me. Gods are real, they bless people with supernatural abilities like magic fire swords, and reward them for beating the shit out of each other. And somehow, I managed to find my way into the most well-guarded location in the entire kingdom of Johto, because that's where I am now, apparently. There's still a small part of me that insists that this is all a dream or some kind of sick, twisted joke like one of those caught-on-camera pranks that rack up millions of views while everyone, including me, laughs at the misfortune of the poor saps in the video. But it's easy to prove myself wrong. All I have to do is reach up to my throat and touch the small cut Carlay's sword left behind. I'm partway through eating dinner, which, like every other meal in the jail, is some kind of porridgey stew when I get another visitor. His hair is what draws my attention first. Like Carle's, it's a weird color, though vibrant red instead of dark blue. He's wearing a kind of turtleneck jacket thing and matching trousers and boots, both in a dark blue with a red trim that perfectly matches his hair. He taps his foot impatiently as he waits for the guard to let him into my cell, before dismissing the man with a casual gesture. So you're the boy that thinks he fell out of another world, he remarks without preamble when we're alone. His tone is arrogant and scornful, and he reminds me a lot of the kids in my class who used to push me around at school. He's about the right age to be one of them, too, no older than me, and the boy comment pisses me off. That's what people tell me, I reply, trying to match his snarky tone, but it doesn't quite work. Trespassing in palace grounds carries the death sentence. So you were going to be executed tomorrow, he continues, and I pale. He grins at the reaction. Fortunately for you, he continues, your little tale of woe convinced my sister to plead your case before father. She's always been too nice for her own good. He steps closer to me as I figure out who he is from the people Lyra and Carley mentioned. Prince Silver of Jodo, Karlae's younger brother. Probably not someone I should be sassing. He's an inch or two smaller than me, but I find myself backing away from him anyway. For whatever reason, Carley trusts you. She thinks you mean no harm. Huh? I don't. I hear a bubbling sound and feel a faint tugging on my shirt, and look down to see a trio of slim blades protruding from Silver's sleeve. He takes a small step closer, and I can't back away anymore and I feel the cold steel of the middle blade pressing against my stomach. "'So I'll make this clear,' Silver continues as I freeze in place, "'and this is the only warning you'll get. You hurt her, and it isn't Father or the gods you should be scared of.'" "'I'm not... I'm not gonna hurt her,' I gulp, trying not to move, or even breathe too deeply. He matches my gaze for a few moments. His eyes are like Carley's as far as their color goes, but they don't have any of her warmth. There's nothing but cold fury there. "'No,' he agrees." You're not. I let out a deep breath as Silver steps away, his claws dissolving back into water. I couldn't, I add, as he turns away and leaves my cell. Even if I wanted to, do you seriously think I could hurt her? I'm not blessed or whatever. Silver pauses and turns slightly, looking back to me with a small grin that doesn't make me feel at all happier. Then you and I will get along just fine, he replies over his shoulder, before casually strolling out of the jail. I don't get much sleep that night. Lyra comes back the next morning. She brings a map of Jodo with her, and spends most of the day teaching me about the kingdom as a whole. She's not a great teacher. She keeps getting distracted with little anecdotes about random things that happened around the kingdom. But it gives me something to do besides worrying about what's going to happen to me. So I'm more than happy to let her ramble on, even if I could probably learn more just by looking at the map for a few minutes. I don't quite have perfect recall, but I've always found it easy to remember simple facts. So learning locations isn't too hard for me. Jodo, she explains, is split into a whole bunch of small regions, each of which, except for Seki, where we are at the moment, which is under the direct control of the imperial family, is ruled by a vassal of the king. There are eleven major regions, though most of those eleven actually consist of two or three regions of their own, which have kind of merged together over the years because politics. Lyra doesn't explain it very well. Just after lunch, Carly arrives to say that I'm allowed out of the dungeons under certain restrictions. She doesn't actually say it, but from what Silver told me last night, I'm pretty sure that's thanks to her talking to the king. Maybe it's her way of apologizing for attacking me when I first arrived. I can't go wherever I please, and I still have to be guarded. But considering that we're in the Joden equivalent of, like, the White House or something, the rules make sense. And it's a hell of a lot better than the damp, cold dungeon. I'm surprised that they'd let Lyra guard me if they still think I'm a danger, but when my choice consists of her, Carlay, or the armored guards, I'd definitely rather have Lyra around than anyone else, so I don't mention my confusion at that aloud. We spend the rest of the day out in the gardens, relaxing in the summer sun, close to where I'd first stumbled out of the bushes and into Carlay and Lyra. The guards have been investigating the spot I woke up in for the past four days. Turns out, I haven't been here a week at all, but Carlay and Lyra let me look anyway. Though none of us are surprised when I don't find anything. The days seem to go more quickly now that I'm not stuck in the dungeons. I'm given one of the spare guest rooms, of which the palace seems to have dozens, and even if there are guards posted outside my door and all my windows are shuttered and locked from the outside somehow, it's a nicer room than the one I have had at home. Despite the medieval vibe the place gives me and complete lack of technology beyond, like, lanterns, they kind of make up for it with, well, magic. Little trinkets that heat bathwater, or clean clothes, or other domestic shit like that. If I don't pay too much attention, I could almost forget I'm still a prisoner. I spend most days with Lyra, learning about the kingdom. On the second day since I'm let out of the dungeons, she introduces me to Lord Koga, who seems to be the castle librarian, and who is more than willing to lend us all sorts of ancient tomes and scrolls that detail the history of Jodo, and translate them for us in some cases. I'm not exactly sure what he's a lord of, though, and Lyra kind of dodges the subject when I ask. Eventually settling on telling me that it's just an honorary term given to the king's counselors. It isn't just the geography of Jodo I learn about. Lyra makes sure that I know all the major members of the noble families across Jodo, and the various important figures in Sekii. Lyra herself, as it turns out, isn't Joden at all. She's a ward of the king, having come from the far-off kingdom of Hoen when she was very young. That kind of catches me off guard. From the way she interacts with Carle, I'd figure they were about equal in status, but Lyra gives me the impression that she's actually about as low on the nobility ladder as it's possible to get. Still, it makes me feel a little more comfortable around Carle knowing the princess has a soft side to her, at least where Lyra is concerned. It's on about the fourth day that I realize that I'm not finding the magical medieval life strange anymore. I still miss home, of course, and almost every day I pester Carle to see if she or the King's Council have figured anything out about how the hell I got here, but if they have, then they aren't telling her, or maybe she isn't telling me. It's slightly more than a week after Carle and Lyra first visited me in the dungeons that everything changes. Koga is translating an ancient, tattered scroll for me and Lyra. It's telling the tale of how humans were taught to work with steel by one of the divines, who stole the secret of steel from another, when the door bangs open and four guards march in. I now know enough to know, by their purple cloaks, that these are the king's elite guards, not the normal soldiers that are always around me. They're accompanied by a man I've only seen once before, the day I first arrived in Sekiai. Though now I have a name to put to the face. Bruno, commander of the Imperial Guards. He barely even pauses to take in the scene before pointing at me as I try to subtly shuffle away from him and his soldiers. The fact that I'm almost constantly accompanied by sword-wielding guards has not made me any more comfortable around the damn things. And there are way too many swords here. Take him, Bruno orders, nodding vaguely in my direction. He says it so calmly, casually, like he's just ordering takeout or something, that it takes me a moment to actually figure out what he's saying. Judging from the panicked expression on Lyra's face when I look over at her, she got there before I did. What is the meaning of this? Koga asks mildly, and the guards freeze for a moment, looking to each other nervously. Not for the first time, I wonder who the hell Koga actually is, but I'm distracted from that thought by the appearance of Silver from behind the guards. He doesn't have his normal cocky expression. He weaves between Bruno and the soldiers and hands a scroll to Lyra and Koga before turning back to me. I swear he almost looks apologetic. By order of his Imperial Majesty King Lance of Jodo, he tells me, almost in unison with Lyra as she reads the scroll aloud. For the crime of trespassing upon the grounds of the Imperial Palace, you are to be taken to the cells and executed at dawn.
0: And now, I'll turn things over to Flop with the backstory of the podcast.
3: Yeah, cheese mate, thanks for squeezing me in. I'll crack on since I'm sure I put enough on the shoulders of the edit team as is. So yeah, Guilty as charged, I'm Flop, I really, really, really like Pokemon fanfiction. I even write some of my spare time. Uh, it's a uh, coming age look called Trainer Watching, it's alright. Anyway, the writer's lock has been formally on the burn since mid-late October, but it owes a ton to a couple of ideas that came before it. Now, I did some assistant duties and scheduling for the initial go-around of Nuzlocke City Radio, sparking a bit of an interest in the format for me. I was one among a few people who suggested slotting in some story time to fill segments for that cast, while we were all waiting on the completion of multi-person items like discussions and radio play content. This came about because there were already some on-stream reads floating around in the bowels of the forum's Twitch bots, and there were also the bones of the Storylock audiobook project, a cool idea that didn't quite make it off the ground. The idea of combining podcast and audiobook sat mostly as a, wouldn't that be neat, until October, when WriteChat, the forum's official writing discord, you know, stop by and say hi sometime. WriteChat were having a bit of brouhaha about how to make the Storylock format more readable and accessible. Chucking the podcast slash Storylock reading idea out there got a few bites, which turned into a thread gauging interest, which turned into a dedicated discord space suddenly teeming with a bunch of incredibly keen fuckers. Receiving auditions and getting storylocks sent in was so bloody exciting too, guys, like, Everyone who got involved so far has absolutely kicked it out the park and is continuing to do so. You guys have brought some skill or contact or resource of your own to bear on this, and it's great. Just really well done, guys. I want to say that again. There's such a depth of talent and passion out there on the forums. I'm really looking forward to using this space to show everyone just a slice of it. Alright, that's enough for me because it's a way into the dungeons with us for today's final offering. Solstice by Mouse with the Dinosaur Tail is a Pokemon Mystery Dungeon Nuzlocke based on Gates of Infinity. And today Plain Yogurt is gonna start us off with chapter one. Take it away, mate.
4: Solstice, chapter one. The world is a terrible place. The world was a terrible place. If any Pokémon ever tried to tell Katrin that the world in its current state was somehow salvageable, somehow well-intentioned, somehow not a complete affront to the gods above, he would sneer at them. No drunken fool could convince Katrin that this world was anything more than a cesspool, a still-watered pond choked with algae and garbage at the end of a muddy stream. It was a world that desperately needed hope, salvation, a sun to light the bleak, murky sky, slowly suffocating it from above. But it hardly deserved even the smallest kindness. The world deserved to rot. Katrin raced through the bushes like a score bunny. The scraggly branches caught on his maroon cloak and grabbed desperately at his blue fur. But with despairing thoughts racing through his head and stinging his eyes, he could hardly keep his mind on the chase. He could hear them up ahead, the stomping footsteps, snapping twigs, deep guffaws bellowing out from the trees. Each noise was further ahead than the last. He was losing ground. He spotted a grainy shadow up ahead, and a voice sang out, Come and get us, little church boy. The comment distracted him for only a second, but it was enough. A root tripped and flung him to the ground. A chorus of shrieking laughter jumped out from every direction, as if he were surrounded. Aw, are we going too fast for you? Do you want to take a break and sing some hymns? Katrin bared his teeth, his face contorting in pain and rage. He cried out as tears of anger streamed through the fur of his cheeks. Give it back! His claws dug into the wet earth of the forest. Just give back what you stole! The laughter that responded was a slap in the face. <laughs> You'll have to catch us first! The silhouettes vanished into the dark, and the pounding of footsteps receded into the distance. Katrin's muscles tensed to spring ahead and give chase, but pain held him still for a moment. His blackened heart twisted, rage pressed against his ribcage and streamed through his arms. He let out a strangled scream and slashed his claws through the bark of a nearby tree. His fingers smarted, but he screamed again and slashed at the wood and kicked the trunk as hard as he could. He barely felt his ankle jolt in pain. Who cared? Who even cared? The world was a rotten, disastrous place. Without a sun, it deserved to bleed out and die. And really, that was all Katrin expected From that night, he expected the bandits would run off with his things, split the prize and ragged mountain up ahead, and go their separate ways all the richer. He expected a night of more pain, more suffering, more wishing for a dawn that wasn't coming, and the cold, still death of this endless night. He expected to lose. He did not expect a weight to land on his head, and knock him unconscious. The first thing she knew was a dream. The dream was like floating in a clear sea. Sparkling lights drifted through the soft, colorful haze, and in that moment, she felt as though her body had shrugged off its earthly bounds and become wind she was one with the rainbow breathing in perfect sync with the mist around her at peace all was calm the voice that came wasn't an intrusion it felt like something not earthly like the voice of a star the song of a bell It connected with her. Might you be a human? She wanted to answer its question, but her spirit didn't move to. It was as if speaking would break the tranquility of this soothing, drifting place. She wasn't even sure she could answer. Was she human? She certainly didn't feel human here. She felt like the heir of the universe. Without prompt, it spoke to her again. If so, then please. I want you to save my world. You must... The voice faded away like a sigh on the wind. And suddenly, something cut through the fog. She jolted like it had cut through her. The faded pastel mists snapped into a vortex of dark purple. A scream barged through the haze. (laughs) Help! An image split through her head like a blunt axe. The void was so loud, dizzying, and painful that she could barely comprehend the vision. There was a Muna in a red cloak. Its eyes stretched wide with terror, as it bolted through a tunnel of rock. A shadow was in pursuit, something hulking and monstrous that bashed its way after the Pokémon. The Muna came to a dead end and cowered under its hood as the shadow of the beast fell over it. From the shadow, six great wings spread wide, and it lunged. The vision went black, the purple haze lurched away, and she was thrown from that spectral place like a passenger tossed out of a crashed car. Her body contorted and balked like a gnarled hand had grabbed her and squeezed her into pus, and she sucked in a gulp of air for the first time. She felt different. Heavy. Something was wrong. The second thing she knew was that she was falling. Her brain was such a spinning mess that she could barely comprehend it. But the buffeting air, her spinning limbs, that awful roaring, she was falling. Her body broke into a feverish sweat. Her lungs heaved. But whether it be from the fall, the panic, or their own malfunction, there was no air to breathe. Tears leaked from her eyes. The ground lunged to meet her, like the colossal beast of her dreams. Her body cringed. Something was still wrong. Smack! You know the feeling of when you're in a panic, and then someone slaps you and things become clear for a second? That's what happened to her then, as she slammed into some unknown shape and slipped onto the ground. She felt wet, sloppy dirt under her back, and she twisted up her nose at the ringing in her ears, but she was alive. That was good. And she wasn't hurt. (laughs) Even better. Wait, but what the hell had just happened? She scrambled to her feet, and the third thing she knew was her name was Elaine. Right. Elaine. That was her name. Of course it was. Had she forgotten that? She squeezed her eyes shut and took a deep breath when she felt panic creeping into her head again. She hadn't forgotten her name, right? That wasn't just something people forget. People forget things like homework and the bus schedule and feeding their pet Magikarp. Normal things. She huffed again, stamped her hooves in agitation, and... Wait. Since when did she have hooves? (sighs) Her whole body stiffened up like a scared purloin. She'd thought she was alone, but something had saved her from splattering on the ground in an unflattering pile of Elaine. And if she remembered right, it had been something fuzzy. She took a mental note to be impressed at herself later for remembering such a tiny detail while quite literally falling from the sky, and turned around to where the groan had come from. Her eyes were just barely open, and she couldn't see anything yet. Elaine blinked the fuzziness out of her eyes, but it was still so dark she couldn't make out a single thing. Had she gone blind? Was it nighttime? She couldn't remember the last time she'd checked a clock, but she vaguely remembered watching MewTube in bed with the lights off. So nighttime seemed like a safe bet. Slowly, she started to make out some shapes, long, tall ones, like the legs of a giant galvantula standing above her. So she wasn't blind. Nice. As her vision came back, she figured she was in a forest. Definitely very odd, since she'd been home in her apartment, last she could remember. And they weren't pretty little trees like the ones in Castellia Park. These were ancient, enormous things. The sort of tree you couldn't cut down without contracting some sort of lifelong forest curse. There were... A few stars out in the murky, bruise-colored sky, weak, flickering little things, and on the ground, a few feet away, was an unconscious Pokémon. Oh! Okay, it was coming together. She'd bounced off a Pokémon that had graciously saved her life. Nice. It looked sort of large, like a big Zangoose and was slumped over unconscious on the forest floor. Sweating and chewing her lip, she tentatively crept over and gave the Pokémon a kick. Hey, uh, are you okay? A groan, and the Pokémon shifted. Cool, that was a good sign. She definitely didn't have the money to take this thing to a Pokémon Center. But as the Pokemon twitched and shifted into an upright position, Elaine's eyes finally adjusted to the dark, and she realized it wasn't a Zangoose at all, but in fact... A giant Oshawott! Elaine scrambled back, eyes wide and mouth agape, as she took in the bizarre spectacle before her. What in the dragon's name was this? Oshawats were little things. Trainers had them on their shoulders all the time. But this creature was taller than her. It must have been a good six feet. What idiot god had allowed this thing to come into the world? <sighs> and the weird got weirder. The Oshawat rubbed its head, blinked its eyes, grit its teeth, and said, What? in the sun's name." Elaine's entire body ran cold. She knew this was the part where she should scream or take the dragon's will into her own hands and kill it with fire, but she couldn't even move. And when the Oshawott fixed its gaze on her and its face twisted with anger, her body flashed colder. You! It jumped to its feet, not without wincing, stormed up to her and jabbed its paw at her nose. Its eyes flashed like the growleths on the Castellia streets after you threw enough rocks at them. Did you land on me? I was in the middle of something. Do you have any idea what you've done? Elaine tried to sputter out a word, but her brain felt like someone had dumped a bunch of purloins in it and shaken it up. All that came out of her mouth was incomprehensible stuttering. The Oshawott snarled. Don't you have anything to say for yourself? Elaine squeaked. (laughs) The Oshawott's big navy blue ears turned upwards as she finally squealed out a question. you talk? How? As if enraged by her stuttering, the Oshwat yanked the hood of his cloak and roared. For the sun's sake, if you were going to fall from the sky, you could have at least hit the ground instead of me and saved me the trouble. Where did you even come from? Suddenly feeling very, very afraid, Elaine brought her legs closer to her body and hunched down. She'd already been scared, but this absolutely wasn't helping. She trembled and her lips twisted up. I'm t- sorry. I, I think I'm lost. I don't... I was in Castelia, I think. I... She looked up at the dark sky. I fell. Didn't I... Yes, and I have the bump to prove it, the Oshawott spat. It, he, its voice was kind of boyish, took a step back so not to be right in her face. He was now looking at her less like a nuisance and more like a pitiable lost kid. Though his eyes were still flashing, his snarl fell away. I apologize, it's... Unbecoming of a member of the church to behave this way, I'm just... He started to move away. Okay, normally, I'd be more willing to stay and assist you, but a very important parcel of mine was stolen. You've held me up long enough, Tepig. The Oshawott whirled around and started bounding into the underbrush on four legs, but he quickly skid to a halt. His ears and tail stood up straight. And he whirled around, with eyes wide as saucers. Tepig. Tepig? Elaine asked. What was he talking about? Oshawa approached her tentatively, on all fours, his hackles raised. He stared at her like she was the giant, talking, church-going Pokemon in a cloak. He scrunched his nose and curled his big fluffy tail down onto his back. I... you're a fire type. Elaine stepped back. She was practically drenched in sweat. Why was it so hot? I... I'm not any type? I mean, Steven says we should count as normal types, but... Oshawott stepped up close a little closer than Elaine appreciated, and scrutinized her like a diamond in a glass case. His eyes glittered. I haven't seen a fire type in years. Not since... They they say they're all gone. I'm not a fire type. He spun away from her. But but it's impossible. A, A fire type shouldn't be physically able to... Oshawott, please! He jumped and spun around at her sudden shout. Elaine didn't appreciate that his cloak hit her in the nose as he spun, but she didn't bother to complain. She stormed up to him and thrust her nose at his face. Stop saying I'm a fire type! I'm human, you hear? Human! So stop saying that! She hadn't known what she expected Oshawott to say, an apology, maybe? But Oshawa simply gave her a grim, confused look and murmured, No, you aren't. Something jolted in Elaine. She grit her teeth. Yes, I am. You're not. You're a tepig. Oshawat sucked in a gasping breath and spat out a mouthful of water at their feet. Elaine jumped back and shivered. She did not get the appeal of water types. Every gosh darn attack looked like they were throwing up. But a puddle filled at their feet, and Oshawott gestured a paw towards it and crossed his arms. Take a look if you don't believe me. Elaine hesitated. She knew what she looked like. Yeah, she was pretty ugly, but all her life, she could look in the mirror and at least know what to expect. Brown skin, browner hair, even browner freckles. Yeah, she was fat, and her collarbones weren't symmetrical. Mom always said she was imagining that, but she was not. And her eyebrows were a jungle, but it was her face. Her body. She'd rather see a hot mess in the mirror than something that wasn't even her. Elaine looked in the puddle, but Elaine didn't look back. The face in the pond was the orange, black-spotted, red-nosed face of a tepig. Her brain cracked into eight pieces. Elaine began to shudder, and hot and cold flashes raced through her body. Her head was spinning. Hey! She heard Oshawott cry, but she couldn't even answer and stumbled instead, nearly lurching to the ground. She landed in something soft, and her head cleared for a moment to see Oshawott had caught her. His eyes were wide as if her freaking out was making him freak out. Please, don't panic, Tepeg! He let her down to the ground gently and Elaine curled in on herself. She was still shivering bad, and she felt feverish. She could feel every inch of her body, and not in a good way. In a very, very bad way. Like the feeling you got after getting home from the pediatrician that kept telling you to cut all the carbs out of your diet and go to the gym. The four stubby legs... The hooves, the big dumbo ears, the snout, the curly Q-tail. She wanted to claw her own skin off, but she didn't even have nails anymore. You're still panicking, Oshawott muttered. Tentatively, he crouched down next to her. Elaine figured it was supposed to be a comforting gesture, but the feel of his fur against her side was like durance crawling on her skin. I know this is strange. Trust me. Meeting a Pokemon who claims to be a human I am a human! She spat. Is one of the weirder parts of my day. But if you are a human, it would mean you're from another world. Which he trailed off. His eyes widened like an idea had struck him. And Oshawott gave her a strange, scrutinizing look. Looking cautious, he leaned over her. Forgive me, I know this is immensely forward, but may I have permission to ask your name? She chewed on her lip. My name's Elaine. For a long, inescapable moment, Oshawott stared at her. His eyes grew wider and wider, like full, white moons, and his lips parted. Elaine shifted away from him, unsure if she should start running or not. But then, Oshawott's face broke into a wide, lip-splitting grin. His eyes sparkled with the light of a thousand suns, and he jumped to her so suddenly that Elaine yelped. It's you! M- me? Me? Elaine crouched low to the ground and backed away. You! You're the savior! <laughs> yes! Oshawa bounced away and began to spring around the clearing like an overexcited Beniri. Elaine had to scramble out of his way just to avoid getting smacked into. He giggled like a maniac. More laughter was spilling out of him than Elaine had thought he could hold. Finally, He stopped and bounded back up to her. You! Finally, finally, finally! I've been waiting so long! He grabbed her cheeks in his paws and pulled her face up an inch from his, scrutinizing her hard. "Eh, Smaller and a lot more patches than I expected, but what's it matter? You're here! He tossed her aside. And as Elaine bit her lip and tried hard not to get offended at the lots of patches comment, he started to sniffle. Can you please tell me what you're talking about? Elaine asked, rubbing her cheeks with her hooves. Sadly, it didn't do much for the soreness. The hooves just seemed to make it worse. What savior? What do you mean? You're the savior. You've been brought here to save the world, just as the great prophetess foretold! Oshawott cheered. His teary eyes widened, like he'd realized something, and he suddenly bowed and touched his nose to the ground. Forgive me for not even introducing myself! My name is Katrin, and as the first Pokémon to meet you upon your arrival in the world, I suppose I... His eyes widened even further, and a giddy little smile tugged at his lips. I suppose that makes me your prophesied guide? Elaine backed away from him, huffed, and stamped her hooves on the ground. Dragon forbid this Pokemon was so frustrating. I'm not a savior, and I don't need a guide. I just need to go home. C- can you please help me? Elaine and Katrin fell silent as a faint howl drifted in the air above them. Katrin looked up, his ears pricked, eyes alert, and Elaine shrank down. Is that an Arcanine? Katrin snarled. Elaine didn't remember ever being scared of an Oshawott, but up close those white, razor-sharp teeth were not cute. Mighty Yenna but if we can hear them, that means they're still close. He turned to face her and adjusted his dark red hood. Saviour, I need you to come with me. These bandits stole my parcel that I need to retrieve, but once I do, I promise I'll explain everything. Your transformation, your destiny, all of it. Can you trust me? Just for a short while? Elaine hesitated. She did not trust Catrin, whether he was lying or not. He was pushy and self-absorbed, and her skin was still crawling from that patch's comment. She didn't understand what he meant by the savior or the Pokemon world. She had no idea where she even was. How far from Castelia could she have gotten in just one night? All she wanted... Was to get home, preferably before morning because Mom would kill her if she missed school. But if Katrin really did have answers, maybe he could help her get home. She didn't like him at all, but it was worth a shot. All right, I'll come with you, and I'll help you get your stuff back. But afterwards, answers, okay? Katrin grinned. Of course, I would never break a promise to you, Savior. He turned to look at a looming shape above. Elaine hadn't seen it in the dark, but it looked like a mountain. The howl sounded like it came from Ragged Mountain. Once we get there, those thieves won't know what hit them. His cloak flapped like a bird's wing as he sprang off into the underbrush. Follow me, Savior! Elaine didn't want to follow him. She'd rather do a lot of other things than follow him. But it couldn't hurt, right? She took a deep breath and coughed when smoke came up out of her lungs. Things really were different now. But she had to suck it up for now. She just had to suck it up. So. Elaine puffed out her chest and followed Katrin into the night.
0: That was the first chapter of Solstice, and the last chapter of this episode. We'd like to thank our three readers for their work, Silverdough, Ordos Girata, and Plain Yogurt. We'd also like to thank our editor, CJ Apples, the head of the project, Flop, and the rest of the Writer's Lock team for their work making this project a reality. And finally, a big thanks to Gamaliel for our theme music, Seamade for arranging our jingles, and Narzimba for the wonderful cover art. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Writer's Luck.